Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and today we're off to space with leading provider of geostationary commercial satellites, SSL. This company builds some of the world's most powerful and complex satellites and spacecraft systems and has just been selected for a NASA project to develop robotic on-orbit satellite assembly. In this episode, our interviewer Andrew Vaziri and John Limer, Chief Architect of Robotics and Automation at SSL, revisit some of the key moments in space robotics from the 1980s through to SSL's current program. Their discussions focus on past robotic systems, such as Canadarm 1 and 2, as well as Dexter, all of which are robotic arms that were used on the Space Shuttle Orbiters and the ISS, as well as futuristic plans to robotically assemble satellites in space. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Glad to be here. Could you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is John Limer. I am the Senior Applications Manager of Robotics and Automation at Space Systems Floral here in Palo Alto. And my main business is, or my main job, is to figure out how to apply robots in space to different government and commercial missions. What kind of work does Space Systems Loral do? SSL is one of the world's leading provider of geostationary communication satellites, and we have a broad range of innovative engineering support that allow us to do different kinds of space missions, including robot missions. And a geostationary satellite is a particularly interesting type of satellite in that it orbits at the same rate as the Earth turns, and so it always seems like it's hovering over one place on the Earth. These are the kinds of satellites that are used by companies like DirecTV, Dish Network, and Sirius XM Radio to get you TV, Internet, and radio uh, that you use every day. We also build small, low-Earth orbit satellites. These are ones that orbit in the same type of of orbit as the space station or the Hubble Space Telescope, and we provide the sophisticated robotics and automation solutions for remote operations in space, like on the space station or in the past on the space shuttle. You've had a background in robotics as well and, and space robotics. Could you talk to us a little about that? Yes. Uh, space Systems Aral has a parent company called MDA, which is McDonald Detweiler and Associates, and that's a Canadian company that has a long history in robots, and that's where I spent the first 30 years of my career was in the Toronto office, and in that office, uh, we developed robots for space, such as the, the robot in the shuttle cargo bay, the, the Canadarm1, and also the robots on the space station. There's the Canadarm2, and there's Dexter, which is the smaller, more dexterous robot that acts like a space-walking crewman. And uh, that company has been building robots for a very, very long time for these sorts of things. And I would say in the last decade or so, we have grown from just space robots to robots for tricky situations on Earth. So examples of that are um, microsurgical robots. Um, we have a, a robot that's operating right now in Calgary 
that operates on people's brains during neurosurgery uh, under the control of a surgeon. We've got more robots uh, that handle uh, nuclear reactor restoration and refurbishment. We've got some that act in automated mining uh, facilities and some sort of mobile robots that allow first responders to send a little vehicle into a, a building or a dangerous situation uh, to scout around, map the situation, uh, find poisonous things, gases, bio kind of hazards, um, which allows then the, the first responders to, to plan their, their way in and to, to, to solve the situation. Could you describe uh, Canadarm1 and 2 and Dexter uh, just broadly and, and the progression between those over the years? Yes. Um, robotics uh, has, has progressed a lot in the last 30 years, and, and not technically necessarily. The technology has been around for a very long time, although it's better now than it was 30 years ago. What do you mean by the technology? The electronics? Yeah, the, the, the mechanisms, the ability to build things to last in space. Um, you know, the, the first lander on the moon, for example, surveyor, um, the kinds of environments that it needed to be designed for are a lot worse than what we do in space in, in Earth orbit. So the idea of, um, building mechanisms that can last in orbit for 30 years, having the electronics that can drive those mechanisms uh, in a very precise way. Those have been around quite some time, uh, and in fact were included in the Canada Arm 1, which flew first in 1981. Um, what has progressed since that time dramatically is the operational maturity and the confidence with which people will do things with robots. So in 1981, um, the state of the art of robots was pretty much the kind of spray painting robot you might find in an industrial setting, like at General Motors, for example. They have welding robots, they have robots that move big parts from here to there, and they have ones that weld them together and paint them and, and that sort of thing. It was very much uh, moving from A to B in a very controlled environment. Every, everything was known, you knew where your parts were and where they had to go, that sort of thing. In the cargo bay, in 1981, it was very similar to that. So the, the Canadarm1 occupied, you know, the big pickup truck uh, cargo bay of the, the shuttle. The crew member who was operating that arm was on the shuttle, and so it was a very direct method of control. There were hand controllers, uh, the left-hand controlled orientation, the right-hand controlled up, down, forward, backwards, that kind of thing. Um, Looking out of the cargo bay, left was left, right was right, up was up, and the crew member could very easily move the tip of the arm to where they needed to grab something, lift it out of the cargo bay, place it somewhere in space where uh, the, the planners would tell them to put it, release it very gently, and off goes another satellite, for example. Um, since that time, uh, especially with the advent of the space station, uh, the crew members who were controlling that robot, first of all, had very many other important things to do, so they shouldn't be spending time driving robots around. But also, on the space station, you can't look out a window and, and control your arm. So left, all of a sudden, left isn't left anymore, right isn't right anymore, up isn't up. And so we had to create a, a situational awareness for these crew members to actually drive the arm. And what we realized very early on was um, 
there was it was a lot of difficulty for them to do that they were they were weightless they had other important things to do they were distracted they you know it was fun driving the arm they loved driving the arm but it really wasn't the right thing to do so we moved the control to the ground and so now we have people who sit in Houston and in Montreal uh and they control those station robots 24/7 any time they want any time of day uh and they do those robots operate daily the the kinds of situational awareness uh that we bring down to them include video and telemetry and overlays and different ways of augmenting the reality that you can see um and and, and now we do things oper- um automatically I should say on space station that we would have never done before um we use local sensing to figure things out so that the crew member does not have to or the the operator I should say on the ground does not have to actually fiddle around with things such as uh installing an electronics box or something like that it's all done mostly automatically by the robots and the 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 operators are are more responsible for saying go there go there go there and and continue to the next step So the types of capabilities that you're describing would these be things that were incorporated with Dexter? Dexter definitely has these capabilities. Dexter has a sense of touch. Uh and we we gave that to Dexter so that when you're inserting an electronics box for example and you have to mate a whole bunch of electrical connectors at the back of that box. Um there's a a very large chance that you will first of all miss and so you won't get those connectors but also jam as you get in there and what we needed to do was give Dexter enough sensory perception that the robot could avoid the jam as it approached so you would never get into a jam in the first place and then second hunt around for where it needed to go so that those connectors would mate properly you wouldn't bend pins you wouldn't push pins you wouldn't do all the bad things that you do when you're blind mating connectors like that and uh all of that has to happen locally within Dexter so that so the the crew member now is not regulating those forces is not fiddling around the way the the arm is actually fiddling around but simply just saying i need this box to go over there go and do it now and then watching and if things start to go badly uh then the crew member or the operator i should say can interrupt and then adjust things accordingly you mentioned earlier that each of these robots came with increasing operational confidence is is that a function of humans becoming used to them or their software being more reliable I think the confidence has grown mostly on the human side uh very early on there was a, a lot of caution associated with robots um industrial robots in particular are very large and heavy and when they do collide with something it's it's a big day a big deal that day Um the robots we built for the space station and for the shuttle have a lot of safety checks in them. Uh, we call it online bit which is online built-in test. And what that means is every um 10th of a second everything is checked. Um are the motors running properly? Is it going the right direction? Is it running into anything? Is it generating too much force? Uh all of these things and if anything is outside of its operational envelope that we've set for it 
then it reacts in some way. It could be that it stops, it could be that it slows down, it could be that it relieves the force, um, whatever the right reaction is for that particular moment. So those sorts of safety checks and, and what we call failure tolerance, um, the arm can have any failure, any time, and be safe. Um, and in fact, on space station, the arm can have any two failures simultaneously at any time and be safe. And so the combination of those circuits plus, I think, people getting used to the kind of jobs we do with robots in space mean we can now do more and more and more um, complex or challenging or, or uh, time-critical things, whereas we wouldn't have done those before. When, when you say it can have any two failures, what does that mean? When, when I think of a failure, I might think of you know, it running into something, or is it at a lower level than that? If something happens at a subsystem level, for example, one of your uh, motor drivers uh, has a short in it, and instead of running at, say, 2 degrees per second, all of a sudden it's running at 12 degrees per second. And simply because of the nature of the failure, we applied full power and we're going 12 degrees per second. The tip of the robot or the, the extremity, the part that's moving, uh, isn't, is no longer traveling in the trajectory we wanted it to go. It's now traveling in a different direction, and it could hit something. And so that event, that action of that short in that particular amplifier, um, we will be monitoring for. And as soon as we see that sort of thing happen, we stop it within about 10 milliseconds, which means the tip of the robot will only get about a couple of inches before we, we know exactly what's going on. And so in the case of Canadarm2, which is a 57-foot-long robot, actually have the tip deviate only a couple of inches when we have failures like that. Uh, it builds confidence in the crew, uh, the, the people surrounding it, and, and the planners. They know they can get close to structure and they know they can do things that maybe they might not have done before. It seems that there's a trend that this slow-level control that you're, you're mentioning of these fail-safes has, has increased over time. Uh, do you feel like there is a call for more and more autonomy in space robotics? Yes. Um, <clears throat> the, the operational maturity and the confidence and the progression uh, continued past space station. So on space station, we use a lot of automatic methods of control. In other words, we, we have a plan, we have a model. We say, okay, we want to go from A to B in this model. It automatically generates a command for the robot, and off it goes and does it. And the, the operator, generally speaking, presses go, um, watches what's happening, and then if everything goes okay and it comes to an end, then we'll go to the next command, and off we go. Uh, a few years back, um, DARPA, which is the research uh, department, if you like, of the Department of Defense, said, um, we would like to run a fully autonomous robotic mission. And in this case, what they were interested in was a satellite servicing mission. And so we had a, a servicer that was a satellite in orbit, and we had a client, which was a different satellite in orbit. And the idea of this particular mission was uh, send a command to the servicer, and it'd be a very, very short command because in, in for DARPA and the DOD, it's important that your commands not be intercepted or jammed or all that kind of thing. So they like very short, very concise, one-time style commanding. Up this command goes. Um, our servicer would autonomously, and we'll talk about autonomous in a second, 
uh, autonomously find the client, rendezvous with the client, uh, reach out with an arm and grab the client, uh, berth the client to the servicer and make it nice and firm so that the two vehicles are now, you know, combined in a stack in orbit under the control of the servicer. Then we would refuel the client, swap out a computer, and swap out a battery. And all of this was done and demonstrated um, a few times uh, with no operator involvement other than go. And then in, because it was in low Earth orbit, we didn't even have comms most times. We were using just ground stations, which mean in a low Earth orbit, which has a 90-minute period, it means it circles the Earth every 90 minutes, you only get to talk to your satellite for 15 minutes once every 90 minutes. And so we hit go in one of the 15-minute windows, and 90 minutes later, we found out if everything worked fine. When it came back around the Earth and we could talk to it again and everything was in the state we were hoping it was in, all the the batteries and computers and everything had been swapped. It's it's a really good feeling. But it's interesting that um, DARPA, which is probably the most forward-leaning of the DOD departments, um, originally asked for complete autonomy. And there are ways of defining autonomy. There's many scales out there. They typically range from 0 to 8 or uh, 1 to 10 or these sorts of things, where 10 is very, very autonomous. Um, the vehicle is capable of reconfiguring itself, figuring out what's gone wrong with either the mission or itself or the command. It could be that it's been asked to do the wrong thing and it needs to figure these sorts of things out. Um, very, very high-level thinking is number 10. And number one is more like the shuttle arm where uh, you had the crew looking out the window with joysticks and everything was very direct. And when the joystick was moved left, the arm went left and that kind of thing. Um, in this case uh, of our autonomous satellite servicing mission, we originally started on a scale, say, around six or seven, which was pretty autonomous. In other words, we are going to tell it what to do. It was going to be able to do it. If it ran into trouble uh, in terms of the environment was bad, the lighting was bad, or the, the it couldn't at first find the client or any of these things, it would get over it. It would figure ways around it. And it, it could generally, in a very mission-specific way, um, have enough logic to get through the mission the way we wanted it to. But as we were coding it up and as we were showing how it worked uh, to the customer, they got a little bit nervous because it was a fairly large investment. And you can imagine the client satellite, uh, the, the owners of the client satellite, sort of thinking to themselves, well, this servicer is going to turn up to my satellite. It's got a mind of its own. Uh, it's able to make decisions. I'm not sure I like that. And so we were actually scaling back a little bit, probably to a level three or four on the autonomy scale, um, to allow a certain amount of determinism that these guys were looking for. And and that was, in my opinion anyways, just a, a statement of the kind of um, risk they were willing to take associated with the operational maturity of where we were. Prior to this mission, um, Operators really were watching robots doing things. Um, there was always this sort of supervision. We call it supervised autonomy in many cases, where if something is going really sideways, then the operator can step in and fix it. DARPA said full autonomy at first, but then you talked to the customer. Was the customer DARPA or a private company that owned a satellite? Um, it was DARPA as well. The customer was DARPA as well. 
Um, and it was a satellite built by a private company uh, and acting like a private satellite. In other words, it was acting very, very differently from the servicer who was built by yet another company um, and, and on purpose because what we didn't want to have was um, the illusion of collusion, I guess. Uh, wanted it to be completely autonomous in, and deal with real-world problems that you would get satellites built by different vendors and you know, all the unknowns associated with that. And wh- when was this demonstration? Uh, it flew in 2007. Since 2007, do you think that people have settled on three or four on the autonomy scale as the optimal level, or are they looking to push to higher levels of autonomy? Um, I, I, I think there's a range of answers to that question. I think three or four is a really nice sweet spot. Um, and, and the reason it's a sweet spot is because it doesn't cost you that much to actually build um, a system with that level of autonomy. Um, the verification of the software is straightforward. There is a degree of determinism that makes people happy. And there is a really good split between um, the cognitive abilities of an operator who can see what's going on and the, the dexterous, the performance abilities of a robot. Um, for example, if we're inserting a very large instrument, a space instrument into the Hubble Space Telescope, the size of a grand piano, um, it's very difficult on those Hubble servicing missions for those two spacewalking satellites to get that instrument into the Hubble, whereas we demonstrated in at Goddard Space Flight Center on the ground with a robot, we demonstrated that we could pick that thing up with a robot and using the internal force moment control of that robot, actually just flip that instrument in in about seven seconds. It was an amazing thing for those crew members to watch, um, but that's the kind of thing robots are really good at and people aren't so good at. NASA has selected Space Systems Laurel to push the envelope of what's possible in space. Could you talk about that? Yes, actually, it's very exciting. Um, uh, NASA, Space Technology Mission Directorate, has awarded us a contract uh, that allows us to think about the next generation of geocomsats. In other words, um, what would we do and what can we do in, in the decently near term, decently near term being the next generation of satellites, which is, say, four years away until about 10 years away, what would we do to overcome the overwhelming influence that launch has on space equipment, such as geocomsats? Um, the launch constrains the mass, the volume, the size of things, and it's also very expensive. And because launch to geo is so expensive, it forces the product, it forces the things that make money in space to be very large, very expensive things that take a huge amount of investment. It's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars to get one of these things up there. And, um, and, and that drives the entire business case. It drives the economy of, of geo. And, uh, and the amount of reliability we need to build into these vehicles because nobody's going to spend a couple hundred million bucks on a satellite only to have it fail in year one. It needs to go past year 15 and preferably to year 22 in order to make sure that that investment's made. And that's all because of the launch. Um, launch prices are coming down, and that's changing the equation of what should the best value for money satellite look like. And then as we think about it further and further, we can go, well, the size of our apertures, and that's the antennas, for example, <clears throat> are limited entirely by the size of the, the fairing of the launch vehicle. What is the fairing? 
the fairing is the pointy bit at the top of the rocket inside of which our GeoComSat fit for launch. And that environment of, of going through a launch, is it is it physically very violent? Yes. Uh, and in fact, those launch loads and that launch environment uh, drive the design of a satellite. They drive the strength of it, uh, the stiffness of all the parts that are in there so they don't shake off, um, and, and generally speaking, the mass. And so the the paying mass, the mass that pays the bills, is the payload, and that's the transponders in our case. Um, those have to be supported and they have to be protected from all that environment, uh, that vibration environment, the noise environment, the shock environment, uh, and all that structure around it is adding mass. And so if you were to imagine all of that payload being launched in foam boxes, for example, and then assembled on orbit, how much structure we could save and how much extra infrastructure we could get rid of uh, and that's that's kind of the vision that we've got heading forward. Could you paint a picture for our listeners? Uh, how big can these satellites be? How much do they weigh, roughly? Um, FSL builds some of the biggest satellites in the world, and our small ones are around 2,500 kilograms, and our big ones are upwards of 6,000 kilograms at launch. Um, that's the size of a school bus and they fit inside the fairing of the rocket, inside that nose cone, all folded up. So the huge solar arrays, which are 40 feet or so, are all folded up in there. The huge antennas, the big round dishes and all that are all folded up in there as well, just like a a transformer, I guess. The space inside the rocket that we have um, forces us to make apertures or antennas only a certain size so we ha- we have to fit everything in there all in one piece and so the idea that we're thinking of with NASA is well we don't have to have everything in one piece when we go up we can take it up in more compact compactly packaged pieces and use a robot on orbit to assemble the satellite that way we can get bigger antennas which mean more data throughput which means more internet for everybody um, we can get more apertures or more antennas, which means for something like a direct broadcast satellite, which uh, beams your TV to you, uh, one satellite can cover many, many more places than the, the current satellites if they had more antennas. What's, what's the scale of one of these potential satellites if it, if it utilizes technology of being assembled on orbit? The, the, the size that you might end up with on orbit with an assembled satellite could be huge. The space station, for example, is an assembled satellite. Um, It came up in many, many shuttle flights, I think maybe 20 or so. And, you know, it's the size of a couple of football fields. So there's really no limitation. Once you start building things in space, there's no limitation. Our first step, and the step that we're aiming for directly with NASA now, is... just to double the throughput of our satellites. And what that means is if there's a certain satellite that's supplying a certain number of people with Internet, we want that same satellite to provide two times that number of people with Internet. And that's simply by using a robot to make bigger apertures than what they have right now. Could you contrast how satellites are assembled on the ground today uh, with what preparations would take place on the ground for an on-orbit assembled satellite? Yeah, so the... The current factory in Palo Alto uh, assembles 
satellites, uh, some, somewhere between six and eight per year of these big geo satellites. So um, they take roughly uh, somewhere between two and three years from start to finish. And so there's generally speaking somewhere like 20 satellites in the process at any one time. That's a long time and there's a lot of fabrication going on there. Um, when we start self-assembling in space, what we would do is we would still build all the parts in our factory the way we do now, except we would configure them slightly differently so they could be packaged in the rocket a little bit better and so that they had some robotic handles and interfaces and markers on them so that you could assemble them in orbit. But then you would launch the vehicle and all of its parts together in the rocket. We've produced all the parts. We've put them into a launch vehicle. Those parts, which are as of yet unassembled, are on their way to geosynchronous orbit. Uh, what happens then? There's an intermediate orbit that we call geotransfer orbit. And that's an elliptical orbit that takes you from a low Earth orbit, such as the, where the space station is or where the Hubble Space Telescope is and those kinds of things, to the very high geosynchronous orbit. And it's in that orbit that the rocket runs out of fuel and our satellite separates from it and then carries on itself into geosynchronous orbit. Once the rocket is separated from the satellite our, in our package, call it our package at this point, um, the package will raise itself using its own engines and its own propellant to geosynchronous orbit. It will take up a spot in geosynchronous orbit called a slot, and a slot is just like real estate on the ground. There's a certain sector, if you like, around the circumference of the geosynchronous orbit that you're allowed, you own, you're allowed to be in there, and no one else is supposed to bother you in there. So we would get ourselves to that slot. We would then start assembling ourselves and the first thing we would do is deploy the solar arrays, unfold them, uh, either using the robot or automatically, depending on how far in the future we're thinking now, and then start assembling the big antennas. And that's where the big, the, the big umbrella-looking like things and, and dish things uh, get assembled. Some of those can be huge. Um, SSLs produce some very, very large ones, many, many, many meters across. Um, for the high-frequency... Um, home to internet type function, what we're looking at is typically a, a fairly high frequency called KA band and for those we need solid antennas solid reflectors, the mesh kind just don't work very well yet um, and so what a robot can do is unstack a pile of these reflectors it could be in a big stack um, somewhere on the satellite and then deploying them um, placing them on structures where they need to be around the satellite so that they act properly. Or we can even assemble those dishes out of parts. Uh, imagine a bunch of hexagonal parts that we'll put together and we'll create a big um, surface that will turn out to be a nice big antenna for us. Generally speaking, the bigger the antenna, the, the better the performance, the more people we can service with the same amount of power on the satellite. What might such a robot look like? Uh, how would it move around the structure as it was assembling it, and how would it pick up each of the objects? The, the robot that we envision to self-construct a satellite is actually a very small robot. Um, using the parts that we flew for the Spirit and Opportunity rovers on Mars, interestingly enough, there's some very small joints 
in those little robot arms on those rovers that, as you know, went for so long on Mars. Uh, we'd like to reuse those joints uh, and put in some fairly long booms, we call them. There, there's kind of segments between the joints. So you can imagine an arm that's probably around seven to nine feet long, very, very thin, very spindly looking, and it would have uh, a hand and a foot at each end, and the hand and the foot would be identical to each other so that it could walk around the satellite from place to place. Because as we mentioned a bit earlier, some of our satellites are enormous. They're in the 20-foot long range. And so if you have this very lightweight arm and it's deploying antennas that are very large, uh, it needs to place itself at one point on the satellite, pick up an antenna dish, and install it on the end of some structure somewhere. And then when that one's done, it needs to step to another corner of the satellite so that it can reach the next dish and then put it where it needs to go. Such a light, thin package. How does it store enough power or have enough processing uh, to accomplish these goals and have the sensing to understand where it is and what it's doing? Um, the, even though the robot's very light, it, it can be smart. The uh, the actuator control cards we have for these are, are tiny little cards, about two inches square. Um, they have a lot of processing on them. They have more processing on them than the entire space station arm put together. And so we have a lot of experience in com- compressing and compacting our code into very, very efficient code. And it has to be. You can imagine for space there can't be anything extra going on up there. Everything's very, very focused. So now that we have a lot more processing available to us on a lot smaller packages, um, we can have compliance control and automatic force sensing and all kinds of things going on in these little tiny ASICs or or packages that that we can create for these arms. Um, And so because we inchworm around on the satellite, there's a sort of a power handling function that needs to happen where you can't have power coming in at both ends at the same time. That'll end up in a very bad day. And so we we switch and monitor the power so that power is coming in from, say, end number one at the beginning. And then when end number two reaches down to the next footprint to do an end over end or inchworm kind of move, uh, we turn off the power to number one, turn on the power to number two, and then carry on. Um, all of the processing in the arm is connected just with straight data buses uh, to processing on the satellite. So the satellite will tell the arm what to do next and where to go, and then the arm will just go away and do it with its own processing. So it sounds that like the very thin design, um, you know, the whole system is architected around that, and it, it does rely on the fact that there's zero gravity or very little gravity. How will you be able to test it on the ground and develop it? Yeah, testing a zero-G machine in 1G is a very difficult problem. And uh, and we've been at it now 30 years, so we, we've sort of got a routine down. When we, when we first did this with Canadarm1, we created a, what we called a flat floor. It's a very, very flat floor, like with laser flatness. And we got things called air bearings, which are like um, air hockey tables, you know, where you have things floating around on air. And we actually suspended the entire Canadarm1 on these air bearings, and we moved it around just as if we would, were moving it around in the cargo bay to make sure that everything was going right, to make sure that our math models were right and, and we knew what was going on. 
since that time, uh, we don't need to do that anymore because we developed uh, mathematical simulations, we call them, which are just very, very giant, very detailed, exquisite mathematical representations of everything that's going on in that arm, including the joint controllers, including the mechanisms, the motors, the brakes, the, even the slight software gets put into these simulators. And, uh, and we've learned over the years how to measure the mechanical parameters of the arm, so the joint strength, joint stiffness, joint torques, those sorts of things, so that we put the right parameters into our mathematical simulations. And then we run them as if it's in zero, zero G in this virtual world. And we've got enough experience and enough flight data um, from all the robots that we've flown in space to say, yep, it's a good model. And for this new one, even though it's smaller, um, we know it's going to work. We know the performance will be like this because these are the kinds of inputs we put in. We, we combined uh, what we would call the riskiest bits of emission uh, as defined by the, the verification simulation model. We, we would then do our testing, our real hardware testing, to, to test out those risky bits, and we would focus on that. So, for example, for Dexter on Space Station, the hard part there was mating electrical connectors. And so we created a one, it, uh, an effectively zero-G facility in 1G. In other words, we offloaded everything uh, with helium balloons and pulleys and weights and all that kind of stuff to show that the robot could, in fact, mate and demate electronics boxes with connectors on them, um, like the kind we were going to see on Space Station. In these highly engineered systems, how are the specifications uh, created? For, for many space robots, especially the government one, um, the specifications are created in um, sort of cooperation with the rest of the mission. So in, in both shuttle and space station, it's a very, very large mission. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of design teams building things all at the same time. And at the beginning of your program, there will be um, very large working groups and very large gatherings of everybody who's building things. And you agree on your interfaces. You agree on what your responsibilities are, what their responsibilities are, and what goes back and forth across that interface. And once that's done, you can then go away and start uh, developing your specification. You can say, my system needs to do this and that in order to function with everyone else. My system needs to be able to provide this system with that and this other system with something else. And you generally all at the same time come up with your system level specification and you all do it in cooperation. So you're, you're on the phone with each, each other continually 24-7 for a year. And then once that's all sorted out, then the details of what's inside your black box you can deal with on your own. And uh, as long as you show that those main sort of performance and functional requirements are met, and that you're handling what's coming across your interface and what's going out of your interface as in a way that everyone else expects you to be handling it, um, then, then you're good to go. How do you win a seat at that table to decide on the interfaces? How do you get awarded to be part of a program? Um, these days, uh, unfortunately, it's heritage is the big characteristic. So uh, if you've done something like this before, um, government agencies in particular are apt to come back to you. Um, and, and they do mix and match, of course. There's 
you know, there's more than one place that, that has the heritage that's necessary. In our particular case, in space robots, we're the only ones who have actually done it for any length of time. Uh, so we're in a very fortunate situation um, that MDA, McDonald Detweiler, our parent corporation, and SSL together um, sort of have this unique space satellite plus robot capability that no one else has. Um, so we often get invited. Um, typically, though, what you need to do is pay attention to what's coming down the pipe in terms of big programs and um, start planning for it and, you know, making sure you understand what it is they're looking for when the time comes. There will be a public RFP or request for proposal, um, and that's the law. Like government agencies in particular have to make it public that they're buying something from somebody and everyone gets a shot at it. Um, and if you are, have you, if you've got yourself into a position where you understand what's necessary and understand who needs what to whom, um, you have a good shot at getting a seat at that table. Why is the amount of importance placed on heritage unfortunate? The reason I used unfortunate there is because um, you had mentioned last phone call that often many of your audience is new, new young startups around the area, and. Uh, and if there's one thing that we learn as we talk to these people, it's their, it's a block. It's like it's a big roadblock for those guys, and uh, and we we need to help do something about that. But that's a different soapbox. Where do you see the the future of space robotics and its impact on the space industry and the robotics industry? Um, I, I think uh, self-assembly in space is the beginning of a whole architectural transformation. Um, we we need the satellite configuration um, to be disconnected from the limitations of the launch vehicle. And the best way we can do that is by a thought process that says we don't have to be constrained by the volume and the mass of the launch vehicle. We can package ourselves any way we like in that launch vehicle. And once we get on orbit, we can turn it into something big and massive and and uh, whatever shape we want, we can avoid the whole environmental problem of launch, and so therefore we can launch a lot less mass. We can have an ecosystem in GEO that allows servicing. So right now, if a satellite, a part on a satellite fails, you can't do anything about it. Um, if we have a servicer up there and a depot and a factory and all those kinds of things, um, the moment something happens to a satellite, we can know about it and we can go fix it, just like your Maytag repairman. That's different. That will make our industry, that will make the the GeoComSat business much, much more competitive. Um, as you know, there's there's different new um, influences coming into the communications market. It's the not-so-influence, not-so-new influences, terrestrial, so laying fiber everywhere is a competitor to us. We need to somehow figure out how do we continue to to compete and to prosper in this market using technologies like this? We'll, we'll stay one step ahead. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. It was a pleasure to be here. And that's the end of today's episode. If you haven't had enough robotics fun yet, just visit us at robohub.org to get all the latest news and developments in robotics, as well as access to all our past podcast episodes. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye.
Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>